Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Okay, we're going to kick this off. Um, I, this is cool. <laughs> I mean, I'm very excited about this, uh, this session. Um, uh, we, I, at least I, in our, in our work here, and I think across Heritage, try to be very frank, right, have very open, blunt discussions. Um, uh, the size of the audience we've got here today, I know there's a lot more. Most of our stuff comes in online but it's kind of emblematic where we have a few people uh, who are very interested in very important topics. <clears throat> and most of the establishment is just so busy in its minutia, right? Uh, which is really one of the primary points of, of this paper. Um, it'll be uh, online on Wednesday. We're gonna be releasing uh, our uh, sixth edition of 2020 Index of US Military Strength uh, Wednesday morning. And I asked uh, Dr. Earhart if he would write an essay for it, and, uh, and I have to tell you, uh, it's probably the best essay I think I've ever written. I know C.S. Lewis wrote some pretty good stuff as well, but <laughs> um, I just think it's fantastic because it's, it's fun to read. Uh, it dives into extraordinarily important uh, topics that really get to the heart of why people and organizations avoid dealing with uh, difficult situations to the point where you find yourself mired in a very, very deep hole uh, when really important things come up and it's hard to reorient to that. And uh, it's really the theme of this essay. And it's, uh, again, I think, I just think the world of it, uh, Tom is just a great, great individual. So I'm gonna introduce myself and Dakota Wood. I'm a senior research fellow here at the Heritage Foundation and our defense center. And uh, we really try to look at issues that pertain to the safety and security of the country and how we amplify other aspects of national power, like diplomacy and economic uh, matters and relationships and all. And uh, it's just a real thrill and a privilege to have Dr. Tom Earhart with us to talk about this essay. Uh, and I'd like to see a little bit about his background. He wore an Air Force uniform for 30 years. Um, during that course of time, just an extraordinary uh, record, uh, starting all the way back to the Air Force Academy. We got his bachelor's. They then earned two master's degrees, one from Cal State, and then uh, the other from the School of Advanced Air Power Studies uh, at the Air University, and then got his uh, PhD in something like nine months. I mean, it's like, what, two and a half years or something? Uh, got your doctorate. Yeah, still the record. So uh, just, again, the intensity of study, focused discipline, and producing world-class work. But he got his PhD from uh, the School of, or, I'm sorry, School of Advanced International Studies at uh, Johns Hopkins. Over his career, chief of strategy for the concepts and doctrine divisions of the Air Force's Skunk Works, uh, led that uh, outfit on the strategy side, uh, chief of the um, outreach aspect of the Air Force's QDR efforts back at the 2000-2001 uh, timeframe, uh, 
ran the um, strategy division at the CAOC in the Middle East uh, there at the very first year or two of air operations into Afghanistan with Operation Enduring Freedom. Uh, has been a professor at uh, back at School of Advanced Air Power Studies at Air University, was a military assistant to uh, the Director of Net Assessment, Mr. Marshall, which I think was where we probably got to know each other uh, most uh, back in the 2002 to 2004 timeframe, uh, actually 2004 2006. Uh, then we worked together at the at, uh, Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, uh, where he was a senior fellow before moving on to be a special assistant to the Chief of Staff of the Air Force in 2009 timeframe, and then from there, senior strategy advisor to USD Policy, and then he was a special assistant to uh, uh, Bob Work when he was Deputy Secretary of Defense. So, uh, No Shrinking Violet has been deeply immersed in issues of strategy, how the building, the Pentagon works, um, how it responds well or poorly to uh, emergent crises and various long-term competitions. And it's really informed from an insider's uh, point of view uh, how the military services and how our defense establishment and more broadly uh, executive branch, Congress, and Department of State to really deal with these things. So I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Earhart, uh, 10, 15 minutes or so. I think you got some remarks. And then I'll join you up here. We'll have a bit of a chat on some of these things and include our audience. And uh, it really should be uh, an informal discussion where we're all kind of, what do we do about this? What are the chief problems and how do we address them? So over to you. Thanks. Thank you, Dakota. And I really appreciate, uh, you know, the Heritage Foundation supporting this effort and Dakota in particular and, and General Tom Spores is boss and they run a really um, interesting and, and uh, effective group of analysts who look at military strategic issues and together with Heritage Foundation, um, writ large, uh, an, a, a pretty amazing foreign policy analytical center. And um, and so I think just allow, you know, Dakota asked me to do this, and, you know, my first response was no, because I had too many things going on all at once, but um, both for personal reasons and uh, because I think so much of Dakota, but, but because... Um, he basically left it open. He should have told me what to write on, and then he said, just write something on major power competition. And so this is something I really wanted to write about, um, and I thought there was no chance that it would be printed, um, included in, in the index, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy that it was, and I hope it gets us talking and moving in, uh, in a competitive direction when it comes to dealing with major power competition. Um, uh, the one thing Dakota might have said um, in my intro, not a criticism, but a, but for your edification, um, I, I sort of grew up in the end of the Cold War, and I was a nuclear guy, so I was in the Strategic Air Command, and, and so I got that sort of Cold War thing right in the face. I mean, I was right involved in that part of it, and the reason I bring that up is because um, I got to really experience deeply and live in the environment where we were competing with the Soviet Union in that sort of last decade of the Cold War, last decade and a half or so, um, coming out of the surprises um, uh, that were uh, that we experienced in the Yom Kippur War in '73 and the Vietnam War and how that translated into the Central Front on a conventional scale, and then the whole nuclear uh, overhang of the, of the Cold War. Uh, 
it both shapes the way I look at things, but it also gave me a model. It gave me a, an example of how you conduct major power competition. It's not the only model, but it's a pertinent model for a, a variety of reasons, not the least of which is one of the countries you know, that we are most concerned with, Russia, is back and is one of the major powers that we have to consider. And so there's a, a set of derivative issues that come from what does it mean to compete with a major power now? And for the fact of the matter is that um, strategy is made in bureaucracies, and, it, and it, it, it's not made, you know, um, in some hallowed hall someplace where they put a bunch of smart guys in there and they try to figure out the best or the optimal path. One of my least favorite strategic words, nothing is optimal. It's all messy. Um, even for authoritarian governments, it is. And so... Um, in, uh, events keep intervening and messing up your beautiful strategies. And so that's what makes it interesting and fun and, and, and serious. And, but bureaucracies make those strategies. And so you have to be a student of the bureaucracy in order to really kind of understand how those bureaucracies are handling strategy. And in a major power competition, you have to be laser focused on the adversary and what are their motivations, what are their interpretations, what are their bureaucracies, what are their biases, historical uh, uh, lodestars, the kinds of things that they, that go into their calculations about what they're going to do, because this is a real competition in the most serious uh, definition of that word. Um, and so not only do we have to be, you know, as they say, know, knowing your enemy and knowing yourself, but really this is becoming a student of your own bureaucracy um, is critical, and that's why I wrote this piece. So if you want what I think is my insight or my insight into sort of the last 20-some years of what happened to our defense bureaucracy as a result of winning the Cold War, this is your paper. Uh, this is my interpretation of what I call, I call it treating the pathologies of victory. Because when you win, there are a set of competitive pathologies that you are, become infected with. And as a longtime athlete, and for those of you who've been in athletics or, or anything competitive uh, at all, you know that winning has a certain, um, can have a certain negative effect on your ability to compete beyond that. And if you win big, it's almost always worse, those pathologies that, in, that, that infect you. And so what I wanted to do was try to be a little bit introspective, because what happens is these things happen to the bureaucracy sort of naturally. They, they infuse, they become a normal part, uh, a normalized dysfunction, if you will, that, that now, because we have to reawaken uh, and become competitive again in the foreign policy realm, we need to examine those pathologies and we need to sort of systematically um, identify them and try to minimize their effect on how we compete with China and Russia today, if that makes sense. And I think, you know, uh, what I wanted to do with this particular piece in sort of the let's just call it the um, 
maybe the not-so-smart um, approach is I didn't want to do what's all too easy to do in D.C., which is blame Congress or blame this or blame that. You know, and then you do that, and you can be facile about it, and everybody will still nod their head, and everyone will agree with you. I wanted to point the finger directly at the Pentagon aspects of our pathologies of victory. Uh, that's where I've spent most of my time, and I didn't want to let them off the hook, so to speak. Um, I think they're adults. I think they can take it. I think they know it. A lot of senior people who reviewed this, um, you know, said this is the, the paper they've always wanted to write or whatever, which is fine. But I'm, I'm here to take criticism of it as well and try to get us into a place where we have a better competitive stance vis-a-vis -vis China and Russia. So the four pathologies in, in short form are... Number one, triumphalism. You win this thing in a dramatic fashion, and everybody thinks it's either not going to happen, because you can't imagine a world in which this authoritarian government, <clears throat> the Soviet Union, isn't around. It's just hard to think of, of that world. But, you know, it's basically nobody imagined that it would go down in such a benign manner. And when you win like that, it then sort of stimulates some bad um, uh, tendencies. And so what I talk about in there, and so this is in a sense sort of time phase. So these are kind of some of the pathologies that started to infect our defense establishment in the 90s. And what you see in the 90s is a couple of things. Um, number one, we just throw nuclear overboard. It just, it just gets, not only is there a dramatic unilateral denuclearization that occurs that I talk about in the paper. It happens in a sort of a backroom manner, um, and it's not reciprocal. It is not reciprocal. It was designed to be reciprocal, that the Russians were supposed to do things, you know, along with us, and but we asked them to be reciprocal. And for any of you who know Russians, there is 0.0, .0 chance that that's going to happen, and it didn't. So what we're left with now today, again, is the aftermath of that, <clears throat> where our nuclear systems have atrophied. But more than that, I talk about our nuclear institutions, because this is cultural. Again, it's bureaucratic. <clears throat> and the bureaucratic atrophy of our nuclear institutions is dramatic. And while I was in government, um, I had to deal with the Welch-Harvey report, which you might want to look up. Uh, because it's shocking. Uh, very few people read it because we're post-nuclear, and in America we think nuclear is some sort of vestige of the past. But the Welch, uh, General Welch and Admiral Harvey, did this report that they, they gave to Secretary Hagel, I believe, in 2015, or late 2014, early 2015. That was just a, uh, wow, it was a wake-up call on how badly our nuclear institutions had atrophied. And they're dealing with nukes. That's why they were so disciplined. That's why they were so um, draconian in their inspection regimes and all that. And, and when that atrophies, you're in trouble. But I don't stop there, and I talk about what the triumphalism did for our conventional forces. And basically what we said was, oh, this is fantastic. Uh, we won big. Um, there's really major power competition is over. Uh, we, we're the champions. 
Um, thank goodness that stuff is done forever. Uh, it's the end of history. And now we can kind of maraud around with all the cool stuff that we built to beat the Red Army and just club baby seals, uh, authoritarian baby seals around the world um, wherever we kind of want to. And it's awesome because it works great. There's no, nobody really can resist us. They have old Soviet stuff. Great, because that's what we designed to, for, for all of our cool second offset stuff to kill. It was just walkover after walkover after walkover. And in, in sort of operational military terms. But what happened was is that atrophied our forces. We didn't buy new stuff. We didn't modernize for reasons I talk about in the paper, and our people were worn out by constantly having to be deployed and constantly having to fight. So we win the Cold War, and it should be peace in our time, but for the Department of Defense, the Department of Defense has been fighting ever since the end of the Cold War at a fairly high rate. And all of those, all that material and people have been atrophying. And what they've been atrophying most, uh, where they've been atrophying the most, is in an area called readiness. And we talk about readiness a lot, and Heritage has been on the forefront of really highlighting the readiness um, crisis. But readiness has a very important question that we should all consider. And that is, the most important question about readiness is readiness to do what? It's not an abstract term. When I talk about readiness, I talk about readiness to go to war with a major power. And we're, our readiness for that is another thing altogether, another bad story altogether because of this atrophy over time. So I'll accelerate a little bit here, but uh, so the first pathology, triumphalism, it really infects us. We get this language, this bureaucratic language of, oh, we're the greatest military that ever walked the face of the earth. And then everybody thinks of even cooler ways to say that and even more magisterial ways to say that. And then, of course, then that accrues to the uniforms and the uniforms get, get a lot of, uh, you know, sort of a pass when it comes to being critical and holding uh, the U.S. military accountable. And you get this sort of um, uh, self-congratulatory triumphalism that doesn't help us a lot. Then we transition right into pathology number two, which is distraction. That's 9-11. 9-11 causes this massive distraction of the Department of Defense. And remember, at the end of the Cold War, all the services go into this defensive crowd. It's like, oh my goodness, the Cold War's over. All of our budgets and our whole program of record and everything is based on that. Now that's over. What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our missions, our budgets, who we think we are? Because the Cold War is over, so everyone's looking for a mission. So, you know, marauding around the world, that's a good one. 9-11 happens. And now it's even more difficult, but it becomes even more distracting because just as 9-11 is happening, you see the rise and the reemergence of China and Russia as major power competitors. You're just starting to see those nascent clues that this is not going to go well, that there's, they're serious. And so in order to focus on the 
counterinsurgency, counterterrorism mission, you have to actively denigrate our preparation for, our thinking about, our modernization for major power competition. So the bureaucracy isn't just happy to just do what, you know, counterterrorism and coin. And I, I mentioned Secretary Gates in there because he was at the forefront of this. Um, uh, it gets to a point where, um, you know, I helped uh, Admiral Greenert, the Chief of Naval Operations. We have a, a, someone from the, the Department of the Navy here, so I appreciate that. Um, Admiral Greenert and General Schwartz wrote a co uh, Air Force, Navy, Air Sea Battle article back in the uh, 2010 time frame, and they couldn't mention China. Couldn't mention it. Couldn't say anything about it. And so then these two very intelligent senior military officials had to go out in D.C. at events like these, and they had to talk about Air Sea Battle, and then the question inevitably came up about China, and they had to deflect it and say, well, not really. it's not really about China. And, you know, tap dance, tap dance, and tap dance. Because even though it was there, and they'd already developed the DF-21D anti-counter-carrier you know, medium-range ballistic missile, that's a big deal, um, you, you couldn't even say the words. Because that's, that's what the bureaucracy does when it gets in this kind of crouch mode where the where distraction has now become another pathology of victory that keeps us from keeping our eyes on uh, major power competitors. So the third pathology that's associated with that is that is this lack of analytical depth and sophistication of our emerging adversaries. What happens is that um, I think I made the point earlier, and I want to reemphasize that um, understanding your adversary. And remember, I, Tom Arrow, I did not put them on the adversary enemy list. Just You just read their national security strategies and their national security documents and were pointedly identified as their enemies. So let's call Russia and China self-identified adversaries. They identify as adversaries of the United States. And they take a tremendous amount of pride and even there's a lot of energy behind that, that, that they're there to, that they, we are their enemy. And they tell us why a thousand ways um, and we don't listen because our, our analytical depth and sophistication about them, when you become a superpower and you've won, Everything becomes your focus, and therefore nothing becomes your focus. So I, got, I, I have to focus on every single country in every single continent at some point, and there's somebody in D.C. who is an expert on that that makes sure you keep your focus on that particular thing, no matter what it is. So we know that some guy in Boko Haram has changed shacks at night, and every senior official in the Department of Defense gets briefed on that every day, and big stuff like anti-ship ballistic missiles and crazy nuclear systems in Russia are being built, and they are not getting briefed. Senior officials are not getting briefed because it's just off the radar screen. It's just not popular. It's not what the bureaucracy has sort of got itself doing. Um, and, and the incentive structure that that sets up as young people come into the bureaucracy really begins to change. And analytically, 
as younger people came into the defense bureaucracy, they were also coming in from colleges and universities who had transitioned away from any kind of instruction about major power competition to counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. And the young people sitting here today probably were affected by that. When I talk to young people today um, in, in uh, teaching master's students, I tell them that they're lucky because they don't they will not be infected by that like the major power competitive class and that will will be coming back they should get on the train right away because that's going to be the rest of their adult life is going to be major power competition what happened in the post cold war era was an anomaly and we have to identify it as an anomaly but it became normalized and this lack of analytical depth and sophistication, we had a 15-year hole in an analysis of Russia that we suffer from. Just 15 years of kind of nothing. All those senior people who had the language and had the longitudinal anal analytical uh, depth on Russia, they either retired or went to counterterrorism. I talked to a very senior guy just the other night who said, oh boy, well, I saw the handwriting on the wall right away and I went to the counterterrorism center and I did this and that. He's a very senior guy. So, you know, he's a bureaucrat and he's finding his way through the system. And it was not to be in Russia's analysis where he started. He started tracking SS-24s and 25s in the 1980s when Captain Earhart was at SAC doing the same thing. So... So this lack of analytical depth and sophistication um, is a sort of broad and deep in the think tank community, the, uh, the uh, uh, academic community, and it's something that we need to address. Okay, so finally, what's the capper to all of this? The capper to all of this is as Putin comes to power and as she consolidates power and as they become just their dramatic military modernization occurs and after the 2008 um, embarrassments in Georgia, the Russian military starts to really change. Really, 2012 is when that really happens. Um, they start to really turn a corner and become a learning organization, become very much not the Red Army I was used to studying back in the 80s. Um, all this stuff is happening, and it's just now too obvious, even for the bureaucracy, even for the distracted bureaucracy that really doesn't care that much about Russia and China, doesn't want to study them, doesn't really want to know what's going on, and feels like we're the greatest in the world, the triumphalism. Even for that, it was becoming difficult. So that's an easy fix. It's becoming difficult. Now I just apply wishful thinking to it and everything goes away. It's fantastic. Wishful thinking is the most beautiful thing. Because as it gets more obvious, I just apply more wishful thinking. And the wishful thinking is positive talk. So my boss likes positive talk. He doesn't like negative. That guy who comes in and says, another book on Russia and Russia's back and it's bad and Putin's terrible. That guy doesn't get promoted. Person who goes, come on, it's all fantastic. We're the winners. You know, those Russia, their economies are, are going to go bad. China's economy is going to tank. Then we don't have to worry about them. Like, should, let me ask you, strategists, should we worry about the economy tanking of a country that has nuclear weapons? I think so. As a strategist, I think that, no, that makes it more of a worry, not less. So wishful thinking, I talk about in there, in the paper, and I think you'll find it, well, entertaining at the very least, but um, useful because you can identify wishful thinking rhetoric 
Um, I have this little sort of, you know, dial in my head that goes off, you know, when the wishful thinking dial starts pinging, you know, when people start saying things like, uh, oh, but, but Tom, uh, you know, we, we would never go to war with China. That's a, cons that's a, that's a big, I have these top five dumb sayings in the Pentagon, and it shifts around a lot, but we would never go to war with, or they would never go to war with us. They're trying to make all this stuff happen peacefully. So is everybody. But then yet you go to war. How does war happen? As a matter of fact, the Chinese and the Russian strategists, they write very clearly about it, and we can't. We have to write in code. We have to, um, as I said, I talk about an interesting concept you might want to ask questions about, and that is the diplomatization of the military. So we've talked about the militarization of foreign policy. That's been a big issue over the last 20 years because there's all these uniforms showing up everywhere and the combatant commanders are marauding all over the place doing foreign policy. So, but, but what happened actually is those senior officers became diplomats in their mind. So they became much more circumspect about things and much more, uh, we need to get along with people more <laughs> and not the kind of um, rhetoric you'd normally expect from military people. And that's not the way their thinking was either. So they always want to do mill to mill because military to military um, interactions, because when we talk to those admirals and generals, they understand us and we understand them and we all know we can all get along. It's just that it's not that way in Russia and China. It's just not that way. That's not the way they see it. And that's not the way they're going to interact with us as major power competitors. So I've probably gone over my time. I haven't looked at the clock, so that's on bad on me. But I wanted to give you that stimulus about what's in the paper and a few tags for you to maybe um, ask some questions. And, and hopefully, again, I not only recommend the index, but it's big. Um, but the, there, there are some very interesting essays in there as well, along with mine. Just read mine first. <laughs> Thank you. Great. I'm not quite sure I understood the points you were making. But, uh, <laughs> um, I just, I think the world of this essay, and did I mention we've got a book coming out um, that it'll be in? Uh, so I do have one question, uh, real quick, to kick things off. Uh, did you invent the word Sitzkrieg? Or was that no, something no, you that's, picked up? No, that's, that's around the Sitzkrieg. Sitzkrieg. Like yeah, I love that one. So it's that sort of, <laughs> you know, the Mattis national defense strategy seems only to have toughened the Pentagon's bureaucratic Sitzkrieg. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. Well, it's, it's what happens in, you know, it's sort of the physics, bureaucratic principle of physics that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Well, when the national defense strategy comes out, an, a magical document, by the way. The Nash, it's fantastic. And the, the tough part about it is, is most of us I haven't read the whole thing because a lot of it's classified. And I was, uh, so I, I've read it multiple times over and over and over, many, many, many drafts in its preparation, and, and it's fantastic. But when something comes out like that that's very clear, it tells you what to do and what not to do, the bureaucracy just goes into uh, resistance mode. And a Sitzkrieg, you know, is just basically like sort of put the claws in. We might have to retreat a little bit, but we're going to retreat slow. And we're going to tamp this whole thing down. 
and we're going to make sure that not too much change happens because change is bad. And, and so the national defense strategy is merely a document to the bureaucracy, a document that actually is irritating only because it makes them have to work to resist it. And so I would tell you that the Pentagon is coming around. I see lots of positive inklings out there. But that's not the question. The question is, where are we relative to our major power adversaries? And if you want to see bureaucratic movement, you should study China or Russia, either one. And you should see what they've done with new services, new national security uh, agencies, much more streamlined uh, decision making, uh, dramatically in, uh, increased learning rates operationally. The, 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 their bureaucratic sitzkrieg, which they have too, has been overcome to a large degree by their fear of the United States. They're moving. And we have to move too, but there's a, there's a rate that we have to move to get back in the game. And so what I'm worried about is that all of these pathologies, which get sort of accepted, they get accepted in our language, in our bureaucracy, and all of this, just are naturally resistant to a document like the National Defense Strategy. So I, um, I've underlined so many things in this paper. We'd spend another three hours just kind of, might as well just read the paper. But uh, yeah, there's, there's kind of the boiling the frog analogy, right, where uh, if you just shocked it with hot, it jumps away. But if yeah. you gradually right. increase, I mean, it's a great right. you know, analogy to talk to news. My, my wife, uh, Dixie, will, will talk about some of the concerns she has just in kind of our uh, cultural you know, context yes. or society. And, and I think she actually took it from a Christian pop song or something. It was called Slow Fade, right? That over time, you know, a boundary is kind of pushed, it becomes yes. normalized, yes, yes. it becomes pushed. But this this unfolds slowly, gradually. Yes. In this case, since you know, the Cold War, you know, I mean, almost three decades, right? Yes. And and so it's when you're uh, a voice in the wilderness. You talk about the office of net assessment, you know, being one of these dark corners of the Pentagon where strategy continues to exist. Um, when something like that pops up, you're criticized for looking for dragons to slay. Yes. Looking for you know relevance you know, as a military establishment, right? right? That uh, you're actually trying to just feed money to the defense industrial base. And, That's the one that hurts you know. the most for me. Like I have no association, you know. And you just go, um, yeah. We want uh, all we want to do is feed money to the to um, contractors, but government contractors were getting billions and billions and billions to do CT and coin. Right. It's not like that's somehow where the money is. You know, the money is wherever the Pentagon puts it, in the bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah, and so it's kind of this uh, ignoring realities, right? Yes. I mean, nobody wants to confront the reality of, of what might be occurring. So like within our index and some other things, we'll talk about just the pattern of human history, even to the United States. You, know, you go Spanish-American War, late 19th century, World War One, World War Two, right. Korea-Vietnam, right. you know, Desert Storm, Iraqi Freedom. Exactly. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah, so every about every 10, 15 years, we find ourselves in some kind of a major conflict. So then yeah. to get to this point where we will never go to major war again, I just can't envision it happening. That we know in major power, I mean, you've talked about all this stuff, but it infects right. the thinking of people. So that, as you pointed out, I mean, a current issue you know in the news is Islamic State. <clears throat> so somehow or other, Islamic State poses the same sort of threat 
<clears throat> to the existence of the United States and our strategic interests yeah. as the Soviet Union did, you know, with a nuclear bench of tens of thousands of warheads. But it's that kind of it's not even close. Not even close. But but that's what's in the mind eye. And and we've got, you know, young officers, we've got old officers, we've got State Department officials, and we've got folks over in Congress that all just kind of buy into that because they've had the luxury of not being concerned about a true existential threat, and so everything else you kind of, as you had mentioned. Yeah, I think uh, my, I have many, many favorite clips here, but the Nash, it was um, the, uh, the last administration's NSC banned saying that Russia was an existential threat. You couldn't say that it was an existential threat. And so then there, you know, the military was going to, convene all the four stars to talk about, you know, was was Russia really an existential threat? And, you know, I just told them, just open the dictionary under existential, and you, it's uh, number one, Russia. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have that. I mean, and again, why? Because, you know, look it up in the dictionary, and it's the, the, Russia, their nuclear, intercontinental nuclear systems pose the most dramatic existential threat to us short of asteroids or something. Asteroid defense is another, you know, thing we should, you know, I, I bring that up as tongue-in-cheek. But, you know, the point is that um, you not only can't, do you have to take that serious, what, what really what existential means, but you have to look at what Russia thinks of that. And Russia thinks their nuclear capabilities and ours are the absolute foundation of the entire relationship. And so it's not that the way I like to say it in town, because it's not fashionable to talk about nuclear things anywhere because we're post-nuclear, I like to say, regardless of what you and I think about nuclear, we have to consider what our adversaries think of that. And they think it's absolutely foundational. So we should be thinking about it, at the very least, from a competitive mindset. So JV is, uh, JV Venables, one of our senior research fellows here, and does a lot on air power. Uh, and you know, we've, we've tabulated. I mean, you've written about, <clears throat> prior to 92, we bought like 500 airplanes a year. Just because you fly stuff, it wears out, right, and you got to replace it. <clears throat> to Tom's point, uh, these sustained operations the last 18 years, whether an F-16s actually dropping a bomb on an Al-Qaeda or Taliban or whatever target or not, you're still flying hours off the plane, right? Uh, and so you go into a procurement holiday between 92 and 2000. When we come back out of that, we're buying less than 100 a year. Uh, active duty army with 770,000 soldiers in 89. Today it's less than 480,000. And, and by the way, the army's procurement and acquisition is a story not many people talk much about. And it's, it's, it's really uh, uh, just hard. Basically, the procurement holiday commenced at the end of the Cold War, mm -hmm. and we just stayed on it. And, uh, um, you know, with the exception of buying very unique-type vehicles for counterinsurgency, <clears throat> which was opportunity cost mm -hmm. as well, um, most of that, by the way, was just left in Afghanistan. It's too expensive to bring it home. So you, you, have a, you have a real crisis in the very kinds of military hardware which affect and deter our adversaries the most. 
that's not a good thing. And they're, by contrast, so hyper-focused on us that they're building exactly the kinds of things they need right. to win against, against us. Yeah, I mean, we've gone from a platform versus platform correlation of forces to a platform versus munition, right? right. So we have to have platforms to deploy 8,000 miles away. Yes. <clears throat> the competitors, the opponents, mm -hmm. can buy munitions, right, uh, that are immediately relevant to their thing. So I, yes. it takes me a billion dollars to build a ship. I sail at 8,000 miles to the South China Sea. They can build a million-dollar missile, you know, on a one to per thousand kind of ratio or whatever, and, and, uh, and, and destroy the, the ship, right? But, but I have to have the platform to get there. So it's just inherently more expensive or harder, and those kinds of things have a presence, right? Right, and it's more expensive when your people are, are being worn out. And I think what we've seen... Um, is that each one of the services in their own unique way, because of their own unique culture and, and the demand, unique demands on them, have gone through this, um, you know, whether it's a recruiting crisis or a retention crisis or just sort of the wear on the force. And with demographic changes in the United States, which this is another thing the index has been really good on over a number of years, is that your, your recruiting base constantly changes, your technical requirements uh, continue to evolve and become more sophisticated. And, and so this whole recruiting and retention lifeline of the people in the armed forces becomes this kind of uh, thing that we just neglect because we always just kind of got it. We just got it by going to the recruiting center and things just happen. And um, Americans need to be more alerted to that. And I think all of these pathologies that I wrote about, again, have set us up in a way um, that makes it difficult for our people as well to both think about and understand what they have to do and what their requirements are to be able to, to, to truly deter. And just one thing about deterrence. You know, this is not a discussion about some mega war between the Chinese and the Russians. On the contrary, the point is, is about credibility. What is our military's credibility to our adversaries and to important third parties like our allies that we could prevail, that we intend to prevail, that we have what it takes to make that happen um, over these adversaries? The credibility is a key term. And so if we start to lose credibility because these pathologies have sort of taken the stuffing out of us, We'll, that, that will begin to show. It can't not. And so um, I, think, I think when your objective is deterring war and trying to make a more stable environment where crises are less likely to escalate because now there are nuclear implications, um, you know, this takes a whole kind of reorientation of this big bureaucracy that for several decades sort of just wandered off into the desert. And it, you said you focused on uh, the Pentagon, but the subtitle of this is Hardening the Nation. nation yeah. I know that's intentional. Um, I want to see if we have any questions. Uh, we'll bring those up. Otherwise, I'm going to continue to ask my own or make comments. Anybody? Uh, well, let's go with Chris. Otherwise, she gets upset with me, and I don't want to <laughs> talk about intimidating, and uh, I'm trying to deter bad behavior. So, uh, Chris McNulty. But, uh, Thank you very much, Dakota. Oh, that was great. It really was. And uh, a lot of my, my own thinking has sort of followed similar lines. But there's one element that I've noticed that a lot, a lot of people don't really think about. And that's the changing values within a society. 
because in the United States, for instance, uh, our values have shifted markedly over the last 20 years, and not so much in Russia and China, although they're, they're changing too. But um, if you like, the, the values associated with winning, with esteem, and yes. those kinds of things are now giving way to values associated much more with self-actualization and those kinds of things. Now, I don't necessarily see that as a problem if we recognize it, because even the people with the most self-actualized values see the value of, uh, of, of engagement in, in, with, with adversaries. Right. Uh, but the way in which we go about it, uh, I think we've, this notion that you talked about, the diplomatization yes. of the military, is part of that. Um, <clears throat> but I don't see that as, as being too big a problem if we recognize it and do something to counter it. But as far as I know, there is virtually no one that's looking at the changing values in society. That's a great question, and I, it's, it's, just a, it's just a huge area of inquiry because when you're talking about major power competition, it is societal, national leaning. It's like a big, gigantic, strategic lean that's going on with catalytic points in there that we have to discuss. And so what we have to think about constantly is not just broadly, and I think this, this gets to your question, your, your question here, which is what are the strategic ramifications of these changes in values over time and how does it com how does it affect the relative competitiveness of of uh, the US and now a triangular major power competition which is very difficult for a lot of reasons but let me just bring up one values issue um, that I think I would point you toward and that is the issue of nationalism and what we mean by nationalism um, it's been sort of objectified in this country as a sort of a bad thing. There's lots of discussion about how to, how to um, uh, define it and all of that. There's not, that discussion does not happen in Russia and China. Um, there, uh, both of them, there are so many interesting similarities and uniquenesses to those two as major power competitors, and we need to be studying more about that. But one of them is both of them have cultivated a humiliation narrative that is part of their national values system now. The humiliation narrative is on the China side, they have humiliation museums. They have museums to Chinese humiliation by the West that she has visited to, to highlight what's going on there. Can you imagine that? Like, I can't even imagine that in Russia, right? Russia would never do that, right? But in China, they do. And, and I find it just personally as a, as a real hardcore competitor, like, that's a great, that's, it's a great competitive lever to get people to, so when, what what that humiliation narrative does is it says it says we're we're a great people we're we're a they're, they're, it, it stokes their nationalism we're a great nation we're supposed to be a great nation why is that not true and what should fuel our rise you know now right this and so this this is a very powerful thing but the humiliation narrative also exists 
in Russia in, a, in their own unique way, um, where, where they see, um, I call it the Versailles Treaty Syndrome, but it's after losing this monumental leaning war, the Cold War, what nations do is fairly predictable. They blame two types of entities. There's always an external foe who wants them dead. And they always think, they think about it in cataclysmic terms, that, that there's a day at a time and a moment when the United States wants to just destroy Russia. And the United States is there, is, is that uh, uh, external. But the internal, they always have internal sellouts and saboteurs and, and uh, collaborators who allowed the enemy in. So during the Russian time of trouble happens in the 90s, and they uh, have, you know, all these advisors came in on economic advice from the United States and everything. And of course, according to the Russians, we were there. We caused them to come apart. That's That's our whole mission. Our whole mission is for them to be destroyed. Those collaborators let them in, and look what happened. It didn't happen because of us, because we're a great nation, too, and we deserve to be a major power. But this humiliation, so Yeltsin and Gorbachev are, are just absolutely PNG, sort of, they're, they're very much objectified within Russia, according to their sort of um, distorted history of the 90s. And most Americans have no idea about what actually happened during that period. And so I write about in the paper, and I think it's, I think, I actually said it three times, so I'm going to say it here too. But we are blithely unaware of these lines, these, these humiliation narratives that China and Russia are both, and we join in them, mostly unwittingly. So you find wishful thinkers in the bureaucracy who find these lines attractive because they comport with their minimization of those two as threats. And they say, you know, you know, like NATO expansion, you know, we shouldn't have done that because, you know, what, so what do you think? Russia wouldn't be, Putin wouldn't be back if we didn't do that? Are you kidding me? Like, we are the cause of it? Because here's what's beautiful about that. It's triumphalist because it says we're the straw that stirs the drink. Whatever we do is causes everything, right? So whatever we do causes everything which is wrong, and it's also dismissive. It's beautiful. You know, it's like, well, you know, if all, then all we have to do is turn, turn a few dials, and then we'll put them back in their box, or Putin will go away. This is my favorite one, you know. Putin is, and she are both, they're, they're products of their domestic political environment. Um, they're both ingenious in their own authoritarian ways, personally, but there are always those people around. But they're products of their internal, and their internal political systems are counter-U.S. The middle class in China is the most nationalistic class in China, not the other way around like Americans like to imagine. It's just not true. But when your analytical depth and sophistication is low, you can think and say anything in D.C. think tanks or wherever it might be. So for people like us that read what they write all the time and are immersed in those in what they say, 
you find this humiliation narrative is a part of their value system, and it's a very effective competitive lever. So that's, that's, that's what I'm always looking for, is what are the competitive levers that each side brings to bear to try to make this thing happen in their favor? He's much too subtle for me. <laughs> <clears throat> Did you have one? Okay. On the back right here, sir. Oh, I thought you had one as well. Got it? Okay. Go ahead. Well, uh, thank you for coming out. That was an amazing talk. I just want to ask about the distraction uh, pathology. Yes. As far as I can tell in the near future, counterinsurgency is not going to go away. All the presidential yes. elections in the past few years have kept saying ISIS or al-Qaeda are biggest threats. Uh, famously, Romney was laughed off the stage for talking about Russia. Mm -hmm. So how do we balance and keep our counterinsurgency techniques while building the techniques we need in the bureaucracy for major power competition? If, if um, so while the counterinsurgency, while we were developing sort of our nascent return to counterinsurgency thinking, many of those people, the counterinsurgency uh, mafia, w were saying the same thing I'm saying. I just want to be clear about this. They were writing stories of the pathologies of, and the, patholo the pathologies for them of major power competition, which makes you ignore counterinsurgency, and now look, we need to look at counterinsurgency again. But we as strategists have to look at what those two mean for America. They're not just counterinsurgency and major power competition and other stuff. They're not ranked the same. As Dakota suggested, the national the implications for us as a nation, as a culture, as a, a, in the international system are, are massively different. But let me tell you what counterinsurgency can do. What it can do is what the Russians and the Chinese have been writing about with glee. It can tie up so much of our resources that we ignore them. Counterinsurgency is expensive. And we, what we haven't done is have any kind of an honest conversation about what it is that it cost us and what we got for it and what we could have done with those resources. So at one point, I have my, my budget share graphs right here. At one point in about fiscal 2009, the Army was getting 30 billion dollars more than in constant year dollars than they were getting during the Korean War, which is an actual war with an actual armies and actual, it was China. Um, and the, the distortion, if I just could show you the graph, it's the largest distortion in the history of the Department of Defense's budget. There's a giant spike that goes up at the end over here from that thing. So the point about it isn't just whether we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We're huge. The Department of Defense is a mini U.S. government. It's gigantic. We can't keep people around who can think through counterinsurgency doctrine. And, you know, we should be able to do that. We should be able to. But my point to you is that... When the bank robber, when asked why he went, he robbed the bank, said what? That's where the money is. In strategy, 
the money's in major power competition. That is, the implications for our society are in major power competition. And we, as strategists, have to keep that foremost in our mind and understand, again, the anomalous nature of that period. I'm not saying throw counterinsurgency thinking overboard like nuclear was sort of done. But I'm aware of the fact that as trends change in the bureaucracy, just the thing I'm talking about here, sort of the fashion, it's like fashion, it changes in the bureaucracy, old stuff gets thrown overboard. So it's almost, it's predictable that we'll go through another dry period when it comes to dealing with counterinsurgency. Now, counterterrorism, that ain't happening, and I'll tell you why. It's called SOCOM, and SOCOM has so infused themselves bureaucratically into our other governmental agencies and the Department of Defense that that's just not going away, and they're good. They're really good. And our intelligence uh, community has also oriented itself so dramatically over to that that, that counterterrorism, I think, is well and truly um, sort of embedded and should be, because this is something that's going to be affecting us over a long period of time. Just one other thing. What we're going to all need to get used to now, however, is that all of COIN, counterinsurgency, and all of these, let's call them lesser type things, are going to be infused, are going to be captured by the vortex of major power competition now. They're not just going to be COIN. It's going to be Russia is going to be involved, and China is going to be involved, and everybody's going to be maneuvering for one of the great powers because they know the other great power will bid just like it was during the Cold War. We used to call it the Cold War Vortex. I love that. It's a great metaphor. But, you know, it's so coin and CT is going to be pulled into this vortex. And we're going to increasingly have to think, what are the ramifications of that particular type of mission in a major power competitive environment? Much like Vietnam was, uh, you know, in, in, during the Cold War. Um, and we saw what an error that was uh, over time. We just have a minute or so left. Um, <clears throat> we were going to have a copy of your paper here. I made the call not to distribute it because when it got printed out, it didn't have any footnotes. <laughs> so, and I must say that. that I, I appreciate a guy like me you know, appreciates that Dakota chose to put footnotes in there. And I would just say, <laughs> just my writing style... <laughs> is such that the footnotes, if you miss the footnotes, you miss a big chunk. Because I put a lot in my footnotes. I put a lot of stuff in there. So, so we'll have it online on the Read 30th. the footnotes. Yeah, read the footnotes. Um, so I'm going to make a last comment uh, from the, uh, the conclusion. Um, the only antidote to the pathologies of victory is fear, right, which yes. I think is critical. Uh, and then the last two paragraphs, thus the wheel of strategy turns. If we as Americans do not want that wheel to roll over us, we can take positive steps to cast aside some of the more dysfunctional attitudes and orientations that have accumulated over the past 30 years. To prevail against self-declared enemies with focused national power and deeply held historical grievances, Americans need to rediscover some of the harder, sharper, more pragmatic aspects of our national character and adapt them to the challenges of the 21st century security environment. And it kind of goes on a little bit longer than that. But just kind of to wrap this up, yes. um, I think that individuals, uh, yeah. hey, you need to change your diet. Nobody ever does that until you have a heart attack, and then you 
find the religion, right? Uh, organizations, whether yes. it's a business or yes. a government, usually do not self-correct, and so there's some catastrophic event yes. that forces them to do something that they're not naturally inclined to do. So this kind of combination of fear, national character, being realistic, you just kind of close a comment on that. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a hopeful comment. Um, the the point is that we need to rediscover those elements that are there in our national character. We're Americans, and you know it's it's hard to take an external view of us. But um, the one big thing that the Chinese and the Russians, um, you know, sort of experience in this in this relationship that's asymmetrical is they fear us. They fear us in a deep existential way, true meaning of that term, um, because we are scary. And Americans are very, very good at competition. And we really know how to put the hammer down if we are so dedicated. But all I'm saying is we've sort of been, we've gone through this, these triumphalism, distraction, lack of analytical depth, this wishful thinking phase. And we need to, we don't need to, uh, create a, a new anything. We have it in us. We have it in us. Uh, there's only two things I, you know, the strategy is about the future and the future is unknowable. But there's two things I could bet on. Number one, that Putin and she will continue to screw up and give us reasons to be serious. And number two, that when serious enough, when fearful enough, Americans will respond and will respond in ways that they can't possibly anticipate that will be very, very effective. And so I'm just trying to catalyze that movement. I'm trying to get that going, and I'm trying to see how different institutions are leaders and laggers when it comes to waking up and getting with the program. The Navy's here. Navy is a power projection service. They're crucially important now. Uh, not so important, not as important in the CT coin phase. They're absolutely crucial and centric now to how we respond to to a global adversary. So that's the kind of thing that I hope to, you know, in a small way catalyze. And I appreciate your interest and Heritage's, you know, um, uh, foresight in, in, in taking this project on. Um, um, Dakota, he put this whole thing together. That's just, I don't want that job. <laughs> that's unbelievable because I know how hard it was just to manage me <laughs> in this essay. And, um, and so I really kudos to uh, General Spohr and Dakota and Heritage for, for putting this, this um, unbelievable uh, analytical um, treasure together for you. And again, I, I really implore you to read it, uh, read the essay, and get back to us and have a conversation about it. I think I really look forward to that part of it. That's great. I mean, with this uh, issue, we've got 22 authors involved. Uh, there's a little over 2,000 footnotes, if you're a footnote aficionado, um, every major defense program we assess, so it's, uh, we're really proud of the work we put together. Oh, You're with the Long-Term Strategy Group now, yes. so helping to rise up the new generation of strategists, and you also teaching over at Georgetown, right? Well, yeah, and and, uh, and Dr. Jackie Deal is a, is one of the best people in town on, on China. She's been studying them for a long time, and she's our boss, and just fantastic, and we run the American Academy for Strategic Education as well which teaches, um, it's a, it's a three-day seminar on, on how to think about competitive strategies and how to think about uh, uh, smart defense analysis that's required for major power competition. And so we're a small think tank that could, and um, uh, we, we do a lot of work 
on and studying our major power adversaries and what they say. So we try to stay up on top of, of that all the time and, uh, and find out that often in this environment it's a lonely place. Uh, we wish there was more competition for what we do. Yeah, well, help, uh, join me in, well, in thanking Dr. Earhart. <laughs> we'll stay around for a few minutes yeah. to answer oh, questions. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for attending. Questions, I got time.